Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Really happy to have everybody back. And this episode is going to be a wild ride through the power and the potential of the human mind and what we are able to do when faced with a, uh, a complex puzzle. Before we get to our guest, Dr. Gurpreet Dhalawal, I just want to mention everyone, please continue to support the show as you have been doing. It's just been amazing to see the show grow, especially since we launched the new website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. If you're able to leave us a rating and a review, it makes a huge difference in terms of people being able to find the show. We are approaching our 100th episode. We just have a wonderful archive now. We've got our four pillars of learning. That's all there on the site. I really encourage people to go and check it out because this really wonderful and eclectic mix of guests that we've had, it's, it's really defined itself into these different pathways of learning and ways to exchange information right there on that interface of healthcare and society. You can email me anytime I'm Mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show. And it's just wonderful to interact with people who are enjoying the show. So thanks for the ongoing support. And let's get started. Dr. Gurpreet Dollywall is, I, it's hard to find the right comparison in terms of if you had a celebrity in the medical field. There are physicians who are actual celebrities and most of us would shrug our shoulders and kind of almost want to disavow them. For me, if I could elevate someone to like A-list status, it would be Dr. Dollywall. He, aside from just being a great presenter, a great guy, approachable, a wonderful teacher, all these different things, he is able to take the extraordinarily complex, which is the practice of medicine, meeting a patient for the first time with zero information, and take that information and very quickly distill it, organize it, stratify it, describe it, discuss it, and put it into a place where you can make rational, sound, diagnostic, and therapeutic decisions for the sickest patients. And that's a lot of words. It is really, really, really hard to do. And so we're going to get some insight into how this wonderful professor of medicine at UC San Francisco has been able to capitalize on not just his natural talents, but to hardwire some specific learning strategies that allow him to not just execute on the highest level in his day-to-day work, but to be the guy that we email our complex cases to and say, can you help me out? I am stuck. Dr. Dollywall, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mark, for having me and giving me probably the nicest uh, introduction possible. I think some of that was true, and I'll try to live up to that reputation you just built. That's right. So we're doing this conversation. We're about a month and a half away from the highlight of the academic year for people who are out of residency, the UC San Francisco Management of the Hospitalized Patient Conference. And at that conference, you take center stage for about an hour. You go through in front of a 1,000 people the bits and pieces of a case from soup to nuts. You basically get the patient's kind of name, rank, serial number, and that's it. And what we would call a chief complaint, why they presented. And we work through from there. And, you know, I was sitting in the audience this last time. I've seen you do this. I'm I'm probably like half a dozen to 10 times. It never fails to amaze. But as I'm watching you do this, I'm thinking about what's the right comparison in popular culture? What do I get to compare you to 
because I was thinking to myself, I'm going to come and ask you to come on the show. This is enough already. <laughs> and, and it came to me, it clicked. And it's so, I'm so delighted with this. I'm feeling very proud of myself. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a physician. And I would suggest, I would posit that if he could create Sherlock Holmes for medicine, it's you. And I would further suggest that if the guys and if the men and women who created the extraordinary BBC Sherlock series could do the same thing with medicine, it's you. How does that land for you? How does that make you feel? Talk well, I, I don't even know how to react because I'm touched. But I will tell you this interesting tidbit about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, he launched the whole Sherlock Holmes series. Um, as a moonlighting gig. So he actually had a really paltry income as a physician. And so he had this thing on the side just to sort of make ends meet. Um, but of course, you're right. It, Sherlock Holmes did turn up to be turn out to be sort of our paradigm of the ultimate mystery solver. And, um, you know, most of my day-to-day life in practice is pretty routine cases. But you're absolutely right that I get a lot of joy out of digging into uh, mystery cases. And, and to be fair, you've seen me. Sometimes I get them right. Sometimes I get them wrong. But I always come out the other end learning a lot more and prepared for it the next time I'm going to see it. So I'm happy to be said in the same breath of Sherlock Holmes. I'm not sure I can um, lay claim to fame to his diagnostic wizardry. It's pretty amazing when you read his series. If you were to describe, and I'm going to ask you to do this, what are you doing that's different than a thousand other physicians? We're all smart. We're all well-trained. We've all kind of been to similar residency programs. We all kind of know the same professors. We've read the same textbooks. What is it that you're doing, and you, I'm sure you can look out in the audience and see it, that jaws are dropping and eyes are bugging out, and the New York Times calls you and says, we need to write a feature on you because you're the antidote to computerized medicine. What are you doing that elicits this response? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I myself would put myself in more of a fan of diagnosis and uh, expert in diagnosis, but maybe that's where the answer is. I believe very strongly in sort of the diagnostic process as the foundation of doing great work. Our goal is to take care of the person in front of us. If I can't put the right label on you, um, then I can't get you well. If I get you well, it'll be because of luck rather than because of skill. And because of that, I've spent a, a good amount of time actually just studying like what goes on inside a doctor's mind. If, when someone walks in with a Symptom and you know outcomes of diagnosis. So I study that, and I think that's been very instructive for me to understand like how the mind tries to solve problems, how it frames it, how it searches its memory for answers, and honestly, how it also makes mistakes. But if I was to do something, I think that's more accessible and sort of how am I trying to reach my maximal potential? It's actually a, a pretty active program of practice, and I don't mean practicing medicine because all of us as doctors practice medicine, it's uh, a little bit of a, a layer that I wrap around it that you might call a training program, just like we say we're in training during residency. So then if you take this training program, I mean, break that down. What are, what would you say are the, the three high points of it? Because when I've watched you do these cases, I do feel like you sort of hit landmarks or I can see you are engaging different different levers, different buttons are being pressed, but you're, you're doing a stereotyped process. It's not arbitrary. And I, I like that you say you practice it because it looks like a really good tennis player. That's my sport hitting the same cross court forehand a thousand times. Malcolm Gladwell tells us we got to do something 10,000 times to finally get good at it. You're, you're doing the same thing every time the words you're saying are different, but I feel like you're hitting the same notes. Is that a, is that the right way to describe this? 
I think it's actually, it actually is really a great way to describe it. I also was a former tennis player, and no one would want to um, uh, model that my cross-hand, a cross-court forehand stroke anymore. Um, but I think in terms of my medical practice or reading strategy or training strategy, maybe that is worth trying to approximate. So you're right. If you see me and you may see me not in my day job, but on a stage at a conference trying to diagnose a conference, you're absolutely right that when a mystery case is being presented, I'm trying to call upon paths that I've been down before. So if the presenter says this person has thrombocytopenia, I'm trying to pull on this scheme that I have for how you approach thrombocytopenia. Or if I learn that this person has carpal tunnel syndrome, I'm trying to pull on a file in my mind for carpal tunnel syndrome. And there's two ways that I can get better at it. I can either enrich that file by seeing patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, reading cases about it, trying to um, teach about it. But then there's also the number of times I've actually had to uh, use that file from long-term memory. So I spend a lot of time saying, how do I get something into long-term memory? And then how many times, how many ways can I find as an excuse to pull it out of long-term memory? So all of us see carpal tunnel. If you do general medicine like I do, you see a lot of carpal tunnel, and it's usually um, overuse-related, and it can be very vexing, but eventually you get used to it. But I always um, am trying to find if there's any case that I'm reading or a story that someone's telling me about carpal tunnel or a patient symptoms who might be like it, if in the back of my mind I can make sure I'm running through the checklist of all the systemic diseases it can be, like could this be acromegaly or hypothyroidism or rheumatoid arthritis or amyloid, and as far-fetched as they are because for the 99 out of 100 cases I see, yeah, it's not that one out of 100 it happened. And it may be in front of a crowd, like at that yeah. conference that you see me working at, but it also could be in my emergency room where someone's um, dealing with this off case and I get to put two and two together. So I, I look for uh, um, reasons to practice the common stuff and all the variations that it comes in. So you said something, and I don't want to miss it. You talked about how you take these things that you've read or seen or studied and you move them from short-term into long-term memory. And I think that that statement is really important for two reasons. One of them is it gets to why I think what you do is so exceptional. And I think that my, my hope is that people learn about you and they learn about the work that you're doing, that it actually becomes a bigger part of how we train physicians and how physicians continue to train and practice because we, we cram, we plug everything into short-term memory. I left the UCSF conference so smart, so smart, but it fades, (laughs) right? Yeah, Yeah, it fades. You finish medical school, you know, everything, but it fades. You study for, for an oncology exam when you're a resident, you're going to crush it. But six months later, a lot of that stuff is gone. So there's that piece. And then the second piece is, and I think this is what's important about with like with this podcast, what in this is generalizable? What is it that someone who's getting their MBA, someone in law school, someone who wants to be an engineer, someone who wants to be an athlete, how do they do that same work so that their, their memories, the things that are important to them go into that file cabinet in their brain that they can then recall when they need it? I think that's an awesome generalizable, well, 
question and principle. So you're right that that is it, what we do. Just so you mentioned the background, like there is a lot of binge and purge, right? That yeah. whether it's our testing we did in school or even CME conferences, I think are very fairly described that way. We walk out saturated and motivated. Um, and that's the problem is the number one enemy that we face as soon as we learn anything, whether it's a great pearl I learned from a guest on your podcast or an awesome lecture at a, a conference, is that the brain immediately starts forgetting. So the number one enemy of us learning is uh, forgetting. And that's an active thing the brain does. We have this thing called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, where the brain immediately starts expunging information that's been given to it. You know, I think I already really forgot good. the like, name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and sometimes that's a blessing, right? Like my brain expunged where I parked my car last Saturday at <laughs> right. a basketball game right. or, or what I had for lunch yesterday. Like that's a blessing that it gets rid of it. But it's a problem when I learned a great pearl about the dress syndrome from a dermatologist or the cardiologist taught me something about aortic stenosis. And I really thought I had it in memory. And then a week later, I'm scratching my head. And so the anecdote to the big house forgetting curve or just forgetting in general is that you have to have um, some way to practice again with the material or manipulate it further in your mind. So if there's new material that you're learning, fundamentally a single exposure isn't enough and you have to either plan for another way to see it another time or take that learning that you had right now and manipulate it in a way that goes into long-term memory. Uh, and we can talk about the techniques, but I think to your first point, is whether you're getting your MBA or you're working in the craft at your small business or you have a hobby, whatever it is, is you have to define like what's the thing I want to get really good at before you sign on for that practice or repetition thing. So I, as an example, have most generally said that kind of diagnosis, but other people might say it's communication as a physician. Other people may say it's ethics or um, high value care, whatever it is. You pick that's my thing I'm trying to get excellence in. So for me... Hearing what you're saying, you're right that you know that forgetting curve that really resonates because and I and I'm not joking. I mean, I, I lose that information quickly, um, and I'm smart. I mean, I'm you know, I, and I love what I do, and I want to be good at it. I'm highly motivated to improve. I don't go to the UCSF conference to goof off. I mean, we have fun at the at night, but during the day, we're locked in. We're answering questions. We're discussing cases. We're all elbowing each other. Like, oh my gosh, I had a case of this. It's a very proactive and engaged sort of a circumstance. But it's difficult when you just know that information is going to leak. And there was actually a really funny tweet that went viral last week where somebody basically said, up to date, which is the tool that a lot of us use to get information on the quick, is going to add a, it's going to add a new module that when you look something up for the third time, it's going to basically just tell you, forget it. You're never going to learn this. And I, I mean, there's things that I've looked up on up to date a lot. And it, it, they don't stick. I read the article, I'm like, of course, I remember now, it makes sense, you know, relative adrenal insufficiency, da, 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 da. And I'll be looking it up again next month. I mean, that's just, that's life. And I think that knowing that we're all smart and knowing that we're all motivated, there are skills that you're doing that we do need to extend. I think we need to figure out how to make what you're doing less of a novelty and more of a practical reality. I uh, listen. I emphasize with them looking up to up to date many times. In fact, I think that alarm would go off a bazillion times for me. But maybe the point is that I go to up to date a lot with that hope that actually with more and more repetitions around that same thing, whether it's renal tubular acidosis or what exactly is the you know the dose of prednisone we have to worry about the side effect that I do see it again and again. And if I am forgetting it, I honestly sometimes I say, listen, maybe. 
there's a message there that it is the type of stuff that doesn't need to be on my hard drive yeah. and it needs to be on, on the, the real hard drive. And I think there is a distinction between that. Sometimes if you take something as common as like congestive heart failure, right? And you say, well, there's a differential for it. You know, you might want to say like, am I really going to beat myself up for not knowing sort of this long extensive list for congestive heart failure, the causes of why someone has a low ejection fraction? And I think the answer to that would be no. Um, right. You might, as a clinician, you might be really disappointed if you're like, you know what, I want to get good at the common causes. I want to know CAD and hypertension and valvular disease and toxin mediated without having to look up that every time. In fact, I want to know those so well that I know all the nuances around those diseases. Like that's the marker of expertise that the way, all the way CAD, hypertension, valves and toxins can do it. And then I don't, uh, beat myself up if I can't remember like selenium toxicity or unusual amyloidosis can cause arterial. Like that's what up to date is for. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So you take it to a different level. It sounds like, but you also just mentioned, and I think this is also, what's really important is that when you're up there on the stage, one case, 60 minutes in the real world, that's entirely impractical, right? The expectation is we need to see 14 to 20 patients a day. They're all sick. They all are complicated. They all have a bunch of things going on. It would not be practical or feasible or safe to spend that much time simply on the ruminative phase because you need to get into the treatment phase and the calling the family phase and the discharge paperwork phase. There's a lot to get done to execute med medical care properly. So I want to talk a little bit about tempo because yeah. I would imagine you're a busy clinician, right? You do this. This is a side hustle for you, you know, doing these, these yep. speaking engagements. <laughs> sure, that, that is literally a sideshow when you see me on stage, right? I'm playing hooky for my day job, which is I'm a full-time clinician. So I attend on the wards four plus weeks a year. I'm yeah. in the ER 12 weeks a year or 12, sorry. I'm on the wards four months a year. I'm in the ER 12 months a year. I staff the medical clinic with the residents. Um, you're absolutely right that 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 is the reality I live in. So how do you shift gears? You're, you're, you're in the ED. There's three patients that just hit triage. One of them's, you know, looks like they might be septic. One of them is short of breath. And one of them thinks that he just swallowed a food bolus that won't go down. You, do you always use the same process? Do you always apply the same strategy? And do you use it in a way or do you alter it such that you can move quickly so that you can do you control the tempo at which you use it yeah i think the, the thing i've learned as we get busier and busier is that a lot of this stuff does have to be hardwired in you like yeah. uh, those patients can't afford like you take those three patients right um given my stage of training like that patient the septic patient can't wait for me to look up how you treat sepsis or how you recognize it That's right. so i owe it to those patients to have that hardwired in me at this stage in my career the dysnic patient I owe it to him or her to be able to start that work up and already know that things like heart failure and pneumonia and COPD and maybe PE and MI have to be on speed dial for me, that I'm not going to look them up. But then the person who you said might have a food impaction, well, that, that person's going to get a little more cobwebs. I'm going to be like, well, you know, I, I remember some bedside tests I've used to see if they can drink a little bit. In the back of my mind, I remember a case or two that I've solved by giving someone glucagon. I know I'm going to have to get a radiograph to figure out, uh, at least as a starting point, if, if I can see a bone or uh, uh, something else that they might have eaten. Um, and, but that one isn't going to come off as fluently. And so I'm already thinking ahead, like, what resources do I need? 
But with every one of those sort of food impactions, which I don't see as often as I see the other two ones, I am getting slowly better. I do uh-huh. recognize it. Uh-huh. But here's the key, right? From that food impaction, let's say that that came up and I'm just shooting from the hip right now as I'm talking, I would work, I'd almost manufacture a way to relive that case where I wouldn't necessarily do it with the other two. So I might say, you know what, food impaction is on my, still so I'm on the steep learning curve for that. Um, so I'm going to make sure I track that case. Like I'm going to find out what happens to him in two weeks. Um, I'm going to talk to GI and if they have time, I'm like just sort of asking him normally, what are we going to do? Or could you scope him? I'm going to try to extract a little learning out of them. Or maybe that's the one I am going to spend some time on up to date on. And then I'm just going to get one or two pearls and then I'm going to find anyone around here in the ED who wants to hear them. It might be a nurse. It might be one of my colleagues. It might be uh, the resident. But that uh, speaking the pearl out loud or the teaching point out loud has much more chance of sinking at long-term memory than if I just read it on up to date. So those are all gimmicks I'm using to uh, put something in long-term memory from the same case on that busy day. It's interesting, right? So that was two minutes of you talking. Those three patients that I just presented to you all are presenting with emergent conditions. They could all rapidly decompensate. They could die. You do what you just described in an eye blink. And just so people are aware, most emergency physicians, that's how well-trained they are. It's an eye blink for them to say, you're first, you're second, you're third. And then get going and then also do those things at the same time. But what it sounds like to me that you're able to do in the midst of that tension and the midst of the family is frightened and the patient might be getting worse despite your administrations, you are still thinking A, outside the box and B, you are moving train cars into long-term memory so that, hey, look, for next time, I'll be even faster. Yeah. I, I love how the way you, you said that too. It's like, I'm, I'm already obsessed with the next time I perform. And there's this interesting study I was done of high performing physicians in Nova Scotia. And they always, they found that these are some of the best docs and they were super busy, but what they found is sort of a two track mind that they're focused on the patient in front of them, but they're always trying to extract some learning because they're foreseeing some future scenario where it's harder or busier and they need to have this new information ready to go. So I, I love the way you formulated that, and I would endorse it completely because there may be a future day where there's someone who's septic, someone who's short of breath, someone who's got a food impaction, and someone who has a stroke. And so the bandwidth that you have to deal with, that, that food impaction hopefully has become more um, automatic for me or more hardwired. So I'm ready to give all four of those patients equal attention. So then if, you're, if we're working with the same skill set and – one of my good buddies, he's a, he's an engineer by training and he manages for a large municipality. He manages water as a resource. So he is all about, you know, desalination, you know, water conservation, routing water, building pipelines, these sorts of things. How does he take this discussion from you and say, I can do the same thing and it will make me a more efficient a more expeditious, a safer engineer for my next project? So it's a great question. I think you would have to start to isolate and say, what are the key things I'm asked to do? So I think you said he's dealing with routing and desalination, et cetera. Um, And you'd have to say, like, which one of those things are on my list of things to do? If you think of a profession, it's kind of a list of skills to have. Like, which one is everyone counting me on me to do? Which one is everyone counting on me to do better? Um, And honestly, which is my growth point, which may not fall in either one of those two categories right now. And then can I figure out a way 
um, to create some what's called desirable difficulty. Like maybe mm. he can go to work and he does a he does a job that's completely adequate to everyone around him. But he's like, you know what? I want to make it a little harder for me so that my brain gets um, uh, it gets it gets a bit of a workout, for lack of a better word. So this concept of desirable difficulty is saying that to really learn, there has to be some challenge placed in front of you. So maybe he has a water routing challenge that he normally does, but he and he's doing his work. I don't know how to envision it anymore. But he says, well, what if this one channel went down? It's not today's a totally easy day. There's no problems, and the water is flowing as it should, but do I have a pre-programmed response if channel X went down? Um, would I know what to do? Or is that something that I have to start reading about or learn about? Or is that actually something that um, I would need to talk to someone about? Maybe I should upload that into my memory now so I have it ready to go when that day happens. And you do see that sometimes in expert performers is that they're always doing these, they're, um, they're pre-preparing for more challenging scenarios than the one that exists today. So that might be one approach you could take. So, I know that you have other physicians reach out to you and say, can I, can I get your insight on this case? They don't ask for your process. They just ask for the answer because they're, they're mm -hmm. stuck. Do you have other industries calling you? Do you have engineering firms? Do you, you, you live near Silicon Valley. Do you have computer engineers? Is there overlap? Are people sort of recognizing, hey, you're doing something in a unique way and perhaps it could help influence what we're trying to accomplish? I don't. And I think, you know, in terms of uh, Silicon Valley, you're right, we're very fortunate to be nearby. Oftentimes, I get calls from people who are trying to make computers diagnose. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, you know, how far along are we in replicating the human mind? And honestly, it's not my mind. It's just like what a doctor does is marvelous. I mean, in terms of diagnosing, you have to remember what a doctor does is take, you know, the two to 300 ways that the human body has uh, can sort of go wrong, at least it's estimated to be roughly in that order, and try to map it onto, you know, the 10,000 known diagnoses. So it's pretty amazing um, what the physician or clinician mind does. But they're often as interested in can we replicate that in computers. And actually, right as of now, we still can. Is there a tension in doing that work for you? Because if we get to a time zero where the computer is smarter than us, not to like replicate, you know, the Terminator where the computers all become self-aware, <laughs> right. but is that, are, are we planning our own obsolescence in sharing your secrets? No, I don't think so. Nor in my, my conversations are usually very casual. I don't have anything formalized with uh, any of these companies, although it's always interesting to think about it, but I don't think so. I think the narrative we're going to go to, and it is for a long time is that, Eventually, we hope to get to a point where man plus machine is better than man alone, right? Yeah, that is the, yeah. the, that synergy would be amazing. Um, uh, I think that notion of sort of, you know, the Watson smart diagnostician or the Terminator cyborg taking over is really far-fetched. And our, I think the early efforts have shown us that it's a lot harder than meets the eye. Yeah, um, yeah. There's amazing things that the iPhone does, but it really can't quite figure out, like, what's wrong with the person who's right in front of them. There's a couple of pieces that I'm going to add to this recipe then to make this actually work. One of them is going to be taking away that what you just described, that we're not planning our own obsolescence so that physicians cannot be afraid of this and can embrace it, that it's going to help them take better care of patients, do it faster and more safely and more accurately. So that's a big one. Number two yeah. is shifting the physician culture. And I actually got on a really interesting conversation about morbidity and mortality conferences in medicine. And we've talked about this on the podcast that the way physicians and uh, the way we embrace the idea of perfection is actually working against us because it makes us where we don't feel comfortable being accountable for mistakes. What you've described in your learning is you're a hundred percent accountable and you use them to get better. 
So if we can make it where I look something up on up to date and then I forget it six months later, hey, this is just another opportunity for me to get better as opposed to I'm so dumb. Why do I not remember these things? If we start to A, change that culture, B, take away that fear and C, add what you do to our training so that we just like when a little kid's learning a language, they're plastic, they do it quick. If we're doing this in medical school, we're going to have an entirely different approach to 21st century medicine. Oh, I love, I love that entire formulation. And I would agree, you know, being okay with error is, uh, it's a long, it's a long time overdue and we're not there at all yet. I mean, I think we're just at the dawn of it. Um, but it really does. Um, I think, you know, errors are inevitable in a complex system like medicine, even diagnostic error, you know, the, the National Institute of Medicine published a um, uh, report in 2015, improving diagnosis in healthcare. And it just right. highlighted that, you know, Docs make errors in diagnosis is the most fundamental thing, and that's not a problem. The only problem is the absence of not trying to get better at it or reducing that rate. And like you said, right, I, when you do these presentations, you don't get it right half the time, but yet the room still rips up in applause. Everyone's still completely <laughs> delighted with what they just see happen. I don't. Nobody cares if you get it, if it was TB or syphilis or a metastatic. Nobody cares about that, right? The, the patient's already been treated. This is This is, case could be years old. They care about the process that you use, and that's what delights people. I think, and I'm happy to share that part of it. Yeah, this case, you know, this year I thought it was uh, histoplasmosis, but it's tuberculosis. One year I thought someone had a pulmonary embolus, but it was a cement embolus from a vertebral art, um, arthroplasty. Like, all of those things are burned in my memory, actually not much different than when I make an authentic mistake in life. Yeah. But I'll give you an example. When I do these public um, performances and I you know, miss the diagnosis or come close, or sometimes I totally whiff. The the next thing I do is I have a log of all of these cases I've done oh, wow. and I write down the lesson and I'll, the, and it's written there. I have this all, it's, it's, it's very low tech. It's a word document. I'm sure now people would put it on something more slick like a um, Evernote or a, a Dropbox, et cetera. But it basically is, I just say, you know what, that in that patient, I didn't recognize that he was a sewer worker. And had I recognized that, that would have been my clue to think of leptospirosis instead of another infection. It's just, it's like all other things. Um, oftentimes the adjustments are very minor, but I just want to remember them for the future because I'm okay with making a mistake once. I just don't want to make it a second time or a third time. Uh, the first time is learning. The second and third time is disappointing. One of the side, one of the, the the subtext of our conversation is this concept of a side hustle, and you need to publish that. You need to either do it as a blog or each make each one a little YouTube video with a little animation. But that stuff cannot just stay in your hard drive. That's got to get out there. It, uh, please do that. Sell it. I don't care. You can sell it on my site. Like that. That is too good. This is the master diagnostician that we all revere and that the New York times has profiled who has an archive of his misses and what he learned from them and how he used them to get better. That is gold. And it's not gold because I'm going to read it and think to myself, you know, sewer worker equals leptospirosis. Got it. It's going to be, look at how accountable he's being. This is the guy that like, if we were celebrities, you're the one and you've kept a list of the times that you were wrong, not the times that you were right. And that's what we want to get at. That's what, you know, one of the other guests on that I've had on the podcast, Dave Burke, who was a Top Gun instructor, he talks about when they debrief after a mission, it's all about the mistakes from a place of accountability and wanting to get better and supporting each other to say, got it. I'm not going to do that the next time. And hey, thanks for telling me about it. 
That's where we need to get to. And what you're doing is the perfect role modeling for that. I, I'm happy to be sort of a, a poster child for it, but let me also tell you where I think I can improve on a more meta level. So you said that with that guess, there's sort of a discussion between two people, right? Right. Um, the truth is, I know I make many, many more mistakes. So one of the pillars of my training program is uh, tracking patients. And I have a bunch of colleagues who are into, into this, and I actually know a lot of docs who really do track their patients. But the truth is, I know a lot of my colleagues are seeing my diagnostic or management mistakes, but you know this, Mark, and I, I think all, all docs would identify with this. It's not really easy for one of my colleagues to pick up the phone and say, you know, hey, Gripreet, um, I just want to let you know that this guy that you admitted with um, uh, cellulitis and you gave Vanco to, all he was actually was venostasis, and he didn't need any of that. I think, you know, we have this reticence to call up a colleague totally coming from a good place and say, I just want to let you know, like you could have done better. And, and you and I will both learn from this conversation. There's still a bit of a barrier and I suffer it too. You're uh, understating you know, it. There's not a bit of a barrier. There's a wall that doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Right. And I think it's because, you know, you, you identify with the other clinician's identity yep. um, or, or you find it just like a, a conversation I'd rather avoid. Yep. You, we All of us, though, we will have a group of people who we have such a good relationship with. You know, they might be your best friends or your closest colleagues. Basically, you know them. So it's already predetermined that you're coming from a safe space when you're telling someone like, hey, you know, you got it wrong. Yeah. Um, there doesn't have to be a buildup or an apology or a, a feedback sandwich. You're just like, you know, they text you. They're like, this guy that you thought had MI, he's a PE, and, and that's it. And I text back, I'm like, thanks. I'm going to go check out the chart. Yeah. Like yeah. that kind of relationship is what you would really crave. Because I bet there'd be a lot more signal in the universe. You know, one of the last mistakes I made, which is terribly embarrassing, but it came from a person I really know was in our ED. They, um, someone came in and he's like, my toe is hurting. And it looked really dark and necrotic and he had diabetes and, and hypertension. I was like, oh man, this looks like a, a ischemic toe. I think it was on the fourth or fifth toe. And I, I looked at it and I felt around and he was really tender where I was pressing it. Uh, and I hadn't gotten labs or anything back, but I called podiatry who's an amazing consultation service at our hospital at the VA. And they were super gracious, not only in coming down or evaluating the patient, but when they turned and they said, yeah, you know that um, uh, that black uh, stuff on the tip of his toe? Yeah, he's like, we have a medical word for that. That's called a scab. <laughs> it was just that the person had really banged the toe. It had like a hematoma with an overlying scab that made the whole thing look black. And of course, I recognized in a heartbeat that they were completely right. But that's how they have a great relationship with them. So it was easy for them to say, yeah. uh, you know, hey, you, you got it wrong. And that again gets back to that culture piece, right? That, that we have that trust in one another, that we're, we're not going to hammer each other. We're going to do this from the right place where we're doing it to try to get better. But when I think about my mistakes, one of the terms that I've come, that I think drives a lot of my errors, especially as a hospitalist is something called anchoring bias. And I'd like to get yeah. your definition of anchoring bias so that we're all on the same playing field. But I, I, I have to catch myself and I have my own little checklist that I try to make sure I go through so, I, so that I can avoid anchoring bias. Yeah, so anchoring bias is one of the many heuristics and biases, or just sometimes it just said heuristics, but the sort of the shortcuts that our brain takes when it solves problems. And we have to emphasize they actually work really well. So we go through life all day long taking shortcuts and we make decisions that work really well. If someone comes in with a vesicular rash, I'm going across half their body and I call it zoster. It's going to be zoster 99 times out of 100 or if they come in and say their toe is killing them and it's swollen right at the first MTP, it's going to be the gout unless they dropped a brick on it. So those are all heuristics, right? 
but the anchoring, anchoring uh, bias is a tendency to fall in love with the diagnosis and then not adjust in the face of uh, subsequent information. So you might say like, you know, I'm wedded to calling this red leg cellulitis, but then there's no fever and then there's no leukocytosis and then there was no antecedent trauma, um, but you keep hammering it away at you're like, you know what, I'm just gonna stick with cellulitis and give this guy antibiotics. And um, that would be an example of the anchoring bias. And there's a very closely related cousin, which is premature closure, which is sort of getting to one diagnosis and not hearing anything else. Anchoring is kind of the next layer over, which is I'll hear the new information, but I'm still in love with my first diagnosis and won't budge. Yeah, no, that's a really, really tough one. My, my brain is bursting right now. You're going to have to come back because we can't, we can't expect people to do 60 minutes of this stuff or they're going to turn us off because this is we, we just need to sit with this for a minute. I need to sit with what you've just described. I need to kind of think on it a little bit and you and I are going to circle back, but I want to bookend our conversation. We started with Sherlock. And when I told people that you were coming on the show, a bunch of people said, and I kind of gave them my comparison. They all wanted to know the same thing. When you're walking around, when you're just cruising, you're, you're in San Francisco, you're out with the friends, you're out with the family. Are you, are you diagnosing disease? Are you, are you seeing the way that the jacket hangs off the shoulder or the, the, the redness on the face or a curvature of the hand? And you're saying, Oh, I wonder if they have X, Y, or Z, or are you able to kind of turn that part off a little bit? I, yeah, I would say I probably know more than any other doctor, but every once in a while I do see a tremor or a gait or a rash that I can't help but go through the exercise of wondering what's going on. I think right. I have enough social restraint not to actually act, ask the person. <laughs> exactly. um, but yeah, that part of me is on because it is around. And one of my mentors told me that he's, he says, look around, you know, if you're on the Muni or you're at the mall or you're, you know, you're at the airport, he, it, it gets to this notion, which probably is more globalizing, which is I really do think when you're trying to get better at a craft, you look for every opportunity to practice without being obsessive. I can certainly go to my kid's basketball game or go for a run or walk around the mall without ever worrying about it. But another way to think about it is if I have the chance and I'm curious to think about it, it never bothers me. It's actually a small bit of joy uh, to get to practice it and, and hopefully you know, become a little better. Even if I just revisit the disease a little in my mind and I go back to life, I don't mind that micro moment of practice. If I ever see you at a coffee shop, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out. <laughs> I don't want to, or I'm going to make sure my posture is perfect and I'm going to wash my hands and I'm going to just be dialed in. If, I, if, I, we see, if we meet at a coffee house and we must do that, the coffee is on me, Mark. I there promise. you go. Great. People are going to hear this and they're going to want to find more about you. I'm going to post a link to the wonderful New York Times article about you. But how do people learn more about your work, the way you approach this? How can they, is there a way for them to see some of these talks or hear them? How do people find you? So I, unlike you, I have not created a corpus of work like you have on the podcast and the, the website, both of which are terrific. Um, I would say that I, um, you know, if you just need a formal listing of me, it's on the UCSF website, but I can maybe point people to two or three articles that capture what we're talking about. One is an article I wrote about what was called the mechanics of reasoning. And it teaches people that if you really want to emulate getting good at reasoning, you should just listen to the guys on car talk. So oh. It turns out that the job of a mechanic is just like the I job of a doctor. Um, and the way those two guys work together in a team is something that we could strive for. Um, 
If you're interested in learning how you track patients, I, I wrote a brief, just these are both two page articles in Annals of Internal Medicine called uh, Diagnostic Excellence Begins with an Incessant Watch. Uh, and it, it, it riffs off a quote from Osler, who says that over a century ago, he said, when you're trying to get better at, med at your medicine, he said, eventually you have to get to this point where you see, you keep a list of patients, the certain ones, the uh, uncertain ones and the in-between. And he says this, he says, um, you can have mercy for the other man, meaning your other colleague. You can have mercy for the other man, but none for yourself over whom you must keep an incessant watch. Of course, we should be charitable to ourselves in this current age, but that keeping an incessant watch um, was such a great word. And so I put that in the title. And maybe those two uh, would give you a general sense of what uh, makes me tick. That's just, it's so wonderful. It's so much fun. We will have links to those articles that go up with this episode. This was such a blast. I, I, you know, when I approached you the other day, you were a total gentleman, and this has just been such a fun conversation. I've put you on the spot many times, and you just, this is just a, it's a great discussion. There's so much more for us to dive into. I really hope that you'll come back, and we'll have to think about a way to, the next time you do one of these, next October perhaps, we can figure out a way for our broad audience that's going to now be thinking to themselves, I just want to see this guy work that we can figure out a way to make that happen. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be on the show, but not only am I a guest, I am, as I told you at the start, I'm now a huge fan myself. So I look forward to learning from you uh, in the months that follow. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.